welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, another glorious day. What's going on? Not so much. The weather is really beautiful here in Asheville. We had our first day over 70 degrees. The dog is out back running around. COVID numbers are way down in our county. The kid's back at preschool. So all in all, things are looking up. I really can't complain. How about yourself, man? I'm doing well. You know, we're... uh... We're jumping into a outdoor track season and some semblance of normalcy, although maybe too much normalcy in Texas, but that's how it goes sometimes. But life is looking pretty good, so I'm looking forward to having another podcast with you. Yeah, and we are both getting pricked in the arm, is my understanding. Uh, I called Steve telling him that you're not going to believe this. I got in a wait list day one and there's a health system that has to clear out inventory to get more vaccines. And they called me. And after this podcast, I'm driving about an hour and a half to go get a vaccine. And then you said, guess what? We're educators. I coach people in person. My wife is a first grade teacher. We're getting our vaccines too. So that is something to look forward to. And hopefully... Many of our listeners have either already gotten vaccines or are getting on wait list and should be getting called soon because I am hearing increasingly more stories of people getting vaccinated, which just tells me that these things are really coming online pretty swiftly, which is great. Yes, yes. We're in the hopefully the final miles of the marathon where we can now see the finish line. We've just, you know, can't give up now. Just got to keep trudging through it. So. Indeed. All right. Well, normally in a podcast, this is where the sponsor ad would go. And for those of you that are new to the show, we want to stay sponsorship free. And the reason for that is as follows. There's this parable in Eastern wisdom traditions about a hungry ghost. And the hungry ghost just keeps on eating and stuffing himself sick. But because he's a ghost, it goes straight through him. He never gets full. He never feels like he has enough. And unfortunately, so much of the products and services in the quote unquote wellness performance success space just feed the hungry ghost in all of us. You cannot buy your way to health or well-being. And as we've discussed before, chasing it makes you unhealthy. Now, are there products and services that work and actually bend the needle? Of course. And we're actually going to talk about a few in today's podcast. But by and large, so much of the stuff just doesn't work. What does work is nailing the basics, community, belonging, mastery, autonomy, the things that we talk about and the things that we try to support. So no sponsors for us. That said, it still takes a fair amount of time and money to produce this podcast and bring you our newsletter every week. So what we've done is we've launched a Patreon. This allows you to support us directly, and you get some really neat stuff in return. We've got a monthly book club with live author Q&As featuring people like Cal Newport, his new book, World Without Email, is this month, Maria Konnikova, David Epstein, Kelly McGonigal, Ryan Holiday, Jessica Leahy, some awesome books and some awesome authors. You also get signed copies of our forthcoming books and a live mastermind group where we'll meet quarterly and really dive into many of the topics that we talk about on this podcast in an interactive way. 
So we highly encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. This will also be in the show notes. Um, yeah, check it out. You get some neat stuff and you help us keep doing what we're doing and you get to save yourself from these very tedious sponsorship ads for stuff that generally doesn't work. All right. Support the podcast, support the growth equation newsletter, all that comes with it. We appreciate your guys' support. So let's dive into today's topic, which You know, coming off daylight savings, some of us maybe were a little bit groggy. Some of us woke up and we're like, what in the world's going on? I feel fatigued. I'm not my normal self. Maybe it took a couple days to to sync back up. Maybe you still aren't synced back up. Don't worry. That's normal. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, which is everything sleep related. Yeah, and some of us have zero to three-year-olds, so we've just been on jet lag mode for the last three years. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry, Brad, I don't know what to do there, but maybe we'll we'll outline some tips and uh, and maybe outline some science on on what you might be missing. Unfortunately, from uh, having a having a small child, I'll never forget. You know, we were really in it when our son was between probably like six months in a year was the toughest. And I'd show up to the gym and this was obviously long before COVID in Oakland. And this, this guy named Seth, who was like just a total badass, you know, he's a tattoo artist, completely covered in tattoos, deadlifts and squats over 500 pounds, always like head looking down, flat brim hat, never really makes eye contact. One day he just looks at me and he's like, dude, you want NyQuil or something right now? And I'm just like, nope, I've just got a six month old. And that like broke the ice with this hard ass. And then he started telling me how he's got two kids. And for the first year of their life, every morning he went to the gym, it seemed like um, he had just had four shots of whiskey and a bottle of wine, but he was simply just waking up. (laughs) So anyways, this is just me ranting about the glories of having young kids and um, in sleep. Uh, It's a question that we always got asked too after peak performance is, well, do you guys have kids? And at the time, neither of us did. And we'd say no. And then they'd say, oh, well, you're going to reconsider the sleep chapter. And um, the funny thing is (laughs) we have reconsidered the sleep chapter and nothing has really changed. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, for me, obviously it's top of mind, whether you have kids, daylight savings time, you're just a human and you're going through cycles of sleep. Uh, I think the first thing to point out as context for this entire conversation is that there are two rules of sleep. The first rule of sleep is to do everything you can to prioritize getting enough sleep. We'll dive into the research. It is so important for both physical and mental health and performance. So yes, prioritize getting sleep, do everything you can to get it. The second rule of sleep, however, is if for some reason you don't get sleep, don't freak out about it. Because often it's the freaking out about not getting sleep that is worse than the fact that you didn't sleep itself. And even though we're at our best when we sleep, we can do pretty good when we don't. So I just want to set the tone by saying that the last thing we want is this podcast to be angst provoking, 
Because if you wake up in the middle of the night, you have some insomnia, whatever it is, and then you're like, oh, my day's going to suck tomorrow. I'm not going to get anything done. I'm not sleeping. Brad and Steve told me sleep is so important. What am I going to do? That just makes it significantly harder to A, fall asleep, and B, get into any kind of mindset to have a good day the following day. Exactly. And, and one thing that I'd, I'd add in there is that there was a fascinating study from a couple years ago that looked at um, variation of sleep versus like catching up on sleep, right? So if if for whatever reason you have a kid, your work life is tough, etc., you only get, let's say, six hours of sleep every night. And you're sitting there being like, well, now Brad and Steve and everybody else and says like I need eight plus hours and I'm only getting six. So I'm going to try and cram, you know, 10 hours on the weekend and, and your sleep schedule looks like, well, I'm getting six one night and then maybe four the next night and then eight, you know, sleeping on the weekend. What they actually found is that the consistency, even if you're not getting enough total sleep is your body kind of adapts to consistency to a degree. So when, when looking at like um, I think I believe in this study, it's learning the consistency of like five to six hours did better than the like huge variations of no sleep this night, then, you know, 10 hours this night to make up for it. And then four hours this night and then eight hours the next to, to make up. And I, I see that as a little bit of hope in the sense of, um, yes, it's always better to get you know, more sleep uh, to a degree and, and sleep is great and all that stuff. But if your current schedule only allows you six hours of sleep, then do your best to stay consistent in getting those six hours and your your performance will will be better than than being angsty and trying to, to trying to make up for it in some regard. Are you saying this, Steve, that if you are only getting six hours for whatever reason and then on the weekend suddenly you have the opportunity to get 10 that you shouldn't? So I'm not, I don't, I don't know if I can stretch the research that far, but what essentially they did is they took people getting, you know, five to six hours and then had it be consistent versus a variable in the sense that some people you got four, you got four hours one night, eight hours the other, you know, five hours one night, 10 hours the the next in terms of learning and performance on, I believe it was some, um, um, mathematical test they did worse so um i don't know how much we can stretch that conclusion out and i'm not saying hey don't if you're tired don't make up for it because there is such a thing as sleep deficit uh that makes sense but what what you don't want is like that rapid variation from from day to day got it so consistency is good yes yeah All right. Well, let's get the basics out of the way really swiftly and then dive into some more of the interesting stuff. Um, So basics, here we go. Exercise during the day. Um, Doesn't have to be first thing in the morning, doesn't have to be in the afternoon, can even be in the early evening, but all the research shows that some kind of physical movement helps regulate your circadian rhythm and sleep cycle. Marginally better to work out earlier in the day, according to the research, than at night, but better to work out at night than not at all. Number two, caffeine. Avoid caffeine after, depending on the study you look at, noon to 4 p.m. 
Now, the caveat is this. If you're an afternoon coffee drinker and you sleep fine, who cares? So only if you're having an issue, cut back on the caffeine. Alcohol, same deal. Ideally, you're not really drinking too much before bed. Most people, if they're going to have a beer, a glass of wine, some bourbon, whatever, you do it with dinner. You want to limit that to no more than two drinks if you're a man, one drink if you're a woman. And that obviously is about sleep and so much more. It's about general health. Keep the room as dark as possible. Air on the cool side. Your body downregulates temperature at night. So the more that you can help that happen, the better. And then stay away from screens. A lot of the research on screens is about blue light and how that totally messes with your sleep hormones. Something that Steve and I have written about extensively is it's not just the blue light. It's also the fact that generally speaking, when we are looking at our screens, those are arousing us. So whether it's checking social media, God forbid, checking the news before bed, doing work emails, all that stuff is sending a message to our brain to like start thinking, which is kind of the opposite of what you want in wind down mode. So that's my list of basics that I try to adhere to. Am I missing any there, Steve? So, no, I think I think you've nailed those. Um, what I'd like to do is maybe go a little bit deeper and let's explain why those things matter. Okay, let's explain why those things matter. And then what I when I said the more interesting stuff, something that I want to make sure that we... Um, we touch on later for folks is melatonin, which is something that I get asked about all the time. And then also the value of sleep trackers. Sure. So I I think this will segue nicely into the melatonin because I think if you understand the mechanisms uh, behind why those, that list of things matter when it comes to sleep, then it kind of answers the melatonin question to a degree. All right, so, so I gave us the ancient wisdom parable about the hungry ghost, and now I'm going to sit back and let Professor Steve tell us about science. Science. This is this is where I get to geek out. So uh, the two things, and keeping this pretty simple, but if we think about sleep and we think about regulating it, right? Your 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 brain, your body almost has this like sleep switch on off, right? That tells you, hey. Let's get a little drowsing and get ready for bed um, or let's, you know, be awake and focused, etc. And the way your body brain knows that is essentially through two mechanisms. One is light, right? So light tells us when to be awake and when to start winding down, Okay. So what does that mean? Well, Brad just mentioned like blue light before bed. Why does that interfere with things? Well, if you think about, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, (laughs) um, we kind of designed or or we were used to having light when we wake up, light during the day, light going down. When the light goes down, signals to our brain, hey, it's time to go to sleep. So what does that mean in terms of things? If we look at regulating our sleep cycle, light when we wake up is actually very beneficial because it acts as a signal. Even blue light when we wake up is very beneficial because it tells us, hey, time to wake up. It's like an alarm clock. So your 
your your eyes and your photoreceptors in your eyes are actually much more sensitive to the light early in the morning because it's used to having this wake up signal. So what you're saying is we should check our Twitter right when we wake up. (laughs) I mean, you can, but what I'm probably saying is you should go outside, right? Especially, you know, especially if you live in a, in a place, uh, not, you know, or that has natural, natural light because you'll get that natural light on your, uh, photoreceptors in your eye. Your brain will get the signal. And it's really actually interesting because corresponding with that, your brain kind of dumps out our morning cortisol release, right? So cortisol is normally thought of as a stress hormone, but our cortisol levels are highest when we wake up because we need an energy release, okay, to get the to get things going. And what's interesting when it comes to sleep, and this is where we'll connect it to melatonin, which we'll come back to later, is when that morning cortisol release occurs, okay, that triggers or, or tells your brain when your evening melatonin release probably should be about, okay? So to kind of go through that one more time, if we delay that morning cortisol release, let's say we don't see any light in the morning, we sleep in and we don't get outside until, I don't know, 10, 11, or don't get a lot of light until 10 or 11, well, you get that delay in cortisol release, which then tells your brain, hey, we don't need melatonin until much later. So it pushes that melatonin, which is kind of sleepiness, drowsiness later. And along so with all- the cortisol release, I know that our blood pressure tends to read highest in the morning into the early afternoon. And the vision that I have is it's almost like our body is going through like this wave where as we wake up, like the wave ramps up, up, up. And then midday at noon, 10, 11, depending on the person it peaks. And then we start kind of slowly falling down. And by nighttime, we should be tired. Exactly. I mean, that's that's all we're talking about is this nice little rhythm. And this nice circadian rhythm occurs with things like cortisol. It occurs with things like light exposure. It occurs with things like temperature, which you mentioned before. So we talked about light as a regulator. The other regulator of sleep is is our internal body temperature, right? So it follows a similar kind of uh, of wave where it rises throughout the day and then plummets as we get into night and 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 um in the middle of sleep and then comes back and rises again which is one of the reasons why <coughs> exercise um can have an impact because exercise changes kind of your body temperature especially if you exercise in the morning but anytime during the day, really, you get this nice little increase for a little little bit. And then after you exercise, you get this nice kind of start cooling down effect. So it's all kind of intricately tied in there, um, which is really interesting and also tells you that there's a lot of variations or various ways which you can kind of nudge this light or temperature in the right or wrong direction for getting sleep. Yeah. So it's a lifestyle. It's not um, a hack. And what I mean by that is there's not like a single variable that will put you to sleep short of, I don't know, Ambien. And and I don't necessarily even think that stuff often works um, unless it's like a very last last resort stopgap. 
And so the interesting thing, you mentioned Ambien there. So Ambien tends to, um, if I remember the research uh, well from a couple of years ago, Ambien tends to um, put us to sleep, but not allow us to get into those deep levels of sleep where a lot of the restorative uh, benefits come from. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're not physicians here. So if you are someone that takes sleep medication and you're not, there's no way that you can sleep right now without it, then, you know, maybe you and your doctor agree that that is better than having absolutely no sleep. Um, point I wanted to make is that these kinds of last resorts things really, I don't think should be tried until we do all the various lifestyle things that get us into, um, more natural harmony with, how we evolve to sleep. And a lot of times people that are struggling with sleep can't check off that list. And I should say can't, not because there's something about their lives that doesn't let them, but simply because they haven't necessarily been really serious about that. So if you have the ability to get some light early in the day, move your body during the day, have a wind down period, not be in front of a screen doing stressful work in the evening, not have caffeine too late in the day and limit if have any alcohol at all, then that normally works for most people. Uh, There's an inertia here. So if it's been a long time since you've been in that kind of rhythm, it can take a couple of weeks for your body to kind of reset. And I think this is a good segue into melatonin, both perhaps for people that are trying to reset and then for people that don't have the ability to sink into harmony. The classic example is a shift worker. So someone that works the night shift, perhaps even more challenging than someone who regularly works the night shift is the case of a medical resident or a doctor on call that works three days like a normal rhythm, and then suddenly they have to work overnight or or two nights or the new parent. Um, So let's talk about when there's either a huge inertia and someone's trying to shift the cycle or when someone is in a situation where the cycle is off and there's nothing they can do to get back in alignment. Yeah, so as as we talked about, just... um... Just previously, that melatonin level is essentially the uh, the drowsiness that helps like signal us to to fall asleep. Right, generally starts uh, rising maybe um, an hour or so or two before before normal bedtime, right? Or normally when you go to bed, and then peaks over the night, and then falls um, very dramatically before you wake up and in uh, in the morning so if we look at melatonin i think it's best to think of it as like this drowsiness uh kind of um kind of hormone well it is, actually is a hormone so when it comes to melatonin taking it as a supplement again we're not researchers on this we're not doctors on this but if i remember correctly on the research that i read a couple years ago is the timing of it is is critical and important it's not that melatonin is going to put you instantly to sleep it is it is the drowsiness signal that tells your body your mind to start preparing for that so if you take it too early or you take it too late after your body's naturally kind of had that melatonin rise, it's not going to have the effect that that you want it to. 
So I think in terms of melatonin, the timing of it, if you're taking the supplement, uh, is important. And then the other thing uh, about it is, again, it is the drowsiness signal. It is not something that correlates, uh, if you look at the research, to the depth of sleep or the quality of sleep um, that, um, yeah. But it can help. My understanding is that it can help regulate because it's telling your body kind of in giving that initial rush of melatonin, it helps you groove into deep sleep. So it's not going to like say like, oh, you're going to sleep deeply, but it helps you. It it does help you groove in. And part of the reason I know this is about six weeks ago, I was just waking up in the middle of the night wide awake and not because my son was waking me, not because the puppy was waking me, not because I was anxious just literally like I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, it must be morning. And then it would be 1 a.m. And my brother's a neurologist. So I called him and I'm like, this is very bizarre. This has never happened. And he's like, you're probably just anxious. I'm like, I'm not anxious. I'm literally just like, oh, time to seize the day. It's 1 a.m. And um, he told me that I should take a little bit of melatonin for 14 days and see if that helps. And it completely solved the problem. Now, who knows if the problem would have solved itself without the melatonin, But his hypothesis was just that in addition to making you drowsy, because as we know, the body is so complex, all these hormones are in conversation with each other, that melatonin is the one that we know is safe to take. So it's signaling to all the other hormones that regulate sleep that, all right, we're back on schedule. Um, So I, I think that like, yes, it makes you drowsy, but it also is talking to the other stuff in the body and really trying to lock you back into a schedule. So the the key there is the last thing that you said is it um, put you back on schedule. So melatonin is highly effective for what we call shifting, right? Your circadian rhythm. So yes, there's a lot of good. My circadian rhythm, for whatever reason, was just like jacked up because it thought that 1 a.m. was 6 a.m. Exactly. So you see, there's then a lot of research on melatonin um, and jet lag or uh, or time zone changes or melatonin and athletic performance uh, to a degree. And the very basics of it is if you want to shift uh, your sleep time um, up. So instead of, let's say, going to sleep at 11 p.m., you want to go to sleep at 10 p.m. And this would take... also be traveling from the West Coast to the East Coast. Yeah. So you take um, your melatonin in the early evening, late afternoon, right? And that will shift it. Um, The opposite side is, let's say if you want to shift the other directions, right? You're going to sleep at uh, um, 11 p.m. And for whatever reason, you want to go to sleep at 1 a.m. Or Or you're going east coast to west coast. Right. Then you would actually take uh, melatonin in the morning, Mm. right? (laughs) to keep the melatonin exposure higher so your brain and your body thinks like oh we're still supposed to like be asleep etc avoid light and that will help you shift in that other direction yeah and to be clear i want to say that the growth eq's kind of official take on this with travel is if you're just traveling like in your own country and you're shifting by one to three hours Unless you're an elite athlete working with a whole team of sports scientists, you probably don't need to be like taking melatonin and worrying too much. 
you might just go to bed a little bit earlier, a little bit later. You might not sleep as well the first night. But this is an area, if you're going from you know New York to LA, the amount of stress, if you're freaking out about the time change, is going to be worse for your sleep than just being like, oh, whatever, we'll see what happens. Uh, if you're traveling to Europe, let's say, maybe you know it's worth doing exactly what Steve said. But again, I think that we kind of come down on the side of unless you have to be like on your game the next day, it's best to let your body take care of itself. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, th- I think you're spot on there. I think it's it's melatonin. Again, you know, even though it's generally regarded as safe, it is a hormone. Um, so like regardless, when you take hormones, you're going to impact the, the rest of your body uh, to a degree. And again, it's generally regarded as safe, but it is a, a hormone. So I would say there is is, yes, if you're looking at for instance, the reason that I've researched this is uh, traveling for the for the Olympic Games, actually, is when I dove down into this. When you're really looking at performing at the highest level and a shift, um, even if you get there early, if you can shift onto that time zone quicker, it benefits you to a large degree because you need to be at literally 100%. If we're talking traveling to Europe... Um, the best thing to do is just manipulate the light exposure a little bit and get your body naturally to do that, right? So light exposure, again, it's very, it's very simple, right? <laughs> if, you th- if you think of light exposure as, as the signal and your, brain, and your body is very susceptible to it, like during the early hours or late at night, you know, then depending what way you're going to shift, you can shift your light exposure with either natural light or artificial light to a large degree um, to get some of those shifts so that you're, uh, you're, you know, adapting to maybe that, that U S to Europe flight um, easier. So for example, when I went, when I've gone to Europe, I'll just give personal examples. Generally uh, the flight is overnight, right? And I arrive there in the morning the first thing I do, even though I'm exhausted, is it's generally in the morning there, you know, 7, 8 a.m. there, is I'll go outside and go for a walk, right? Light exposure during their natural morning, which is the time zone you're trying to shift to. So get that, get your body, brain on 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 point. And then that that exercise, that walk, being outside, raising temperature a little bit will help sync you up to a greater degree than than worrying about melatonin uh, increases or decreases. Yeah. One more thing on melatonin that I think is super important. Uh, melatonin, I'm just pulling it up. It seems to be like a, a race to the most. And this gets back to precisely why we don't really want sponsors that try to you know, sell your way into health and wellness. And what I mean by a race to the most is you can buy five milligram melatonin, you can buy extra strength, 10 milligram, you can buy quadruple strength, super melatonin, 20 milligrams. And of course, the more milligrams and the stronger the melatonin is, the more expensive it is. There is so much research that shows that the best dose of melatonin is between one and three grams. So like, don't fall for that stuff. And the reason why is related to something that I said earlier is that a huge part of what melatonin does is it 
not only makes you drowsy and regulates the circadian rhythm, but it gives all these signals to other hormones to start coming online or going offline. And if you overload your system with 20 grams of melatonin, way more than it would normally produce, the other hormones are going to be like, shit, I don't know what's going on. Should I wake up? Should I go to sleep? Should I just shut down? Your body is going to put the brakes on its natural melatonin and um, it just doesn't work. You know, it's kind of like if um, if running two 400s is good, then the wellness industrial complex says, well, running 10 400s must be better. So let's give a 10 400 dose. And then you run 10 400s and it completely jacks you up. Um, so the best way to take melatonin is one to three grams. And you literally often can't find it in doses that small. So what you got to do is get the liquid variety. Or if you have a tablet, maybe you cut it in half. Um, so yeah, that uh, that's something to be aware of there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Because again, I think anything you can take as a pill can be sold. So uh, there, <laughs> the science kind of goes by the wayside somewhere. So again, be careful. Another thing I'd say is just again, which is kind of our theme at the at the growth equation is, you know, if there's a, if there's a way to do it that doesn't involve taking something, then, then we're all about it. We've talked about light. And I think one other thing that, you know, we've talked about temperature in terms of exercise. One other thing that I, I think is interesting and worth noting is, you know, a, a lot of times um, people might take a uh, warmer, a hot bath at night before bed to like relax and it helps them sleep and you might be thinking well why does that how does that happen that should raise your temperature right no because what happens is you get a temperature temporary raise in temperature on the external side but you get a reciprocal cooling effect afterwards yeah so that's why that effect really works and if you think the opposite which is really trendy right now with people taking like cold showers or ice baths in the morning, right? Well, you get the opposite effect there. You get the cooling of the hot of the ice bath, but what actually happens is your body starts to warm up after that. So that's why sometimes, you know, people do those ice plunges in the morning and get that that nice arousal afterwards in terms of temperature and um all that good stuff. And I want to quickly, Steve, jump in and correct myself. I said grams of melatonin, it's milligrams. So if anyone's selling you 20 grams of melatonin, then like you're, <laughs> you really better be suspect. Um, so yeah, milligrams, not grams. Just convert, you know, the, the, the one to three milligrams. Yeah. Otherwise you're buying like a two liter of melatonin. Be interesting for, for the purposes of science. All right. So we, we've talked about the basics. We've talked about when melatonin is appropriate, when your circadian rhythm's off, when you've tried natural things and you just need a little boost. There's nothing wrong with it. You shouldn't feel bad about using it in those situations. It's not something you want to use daily. Research shows that daily use is often associated with um, poor sleep over the long term, likely because your body gets confused, stops making its own melatonin um, and whatnot. We mentioned it's just been daylight savings time. Daylight savings time messes everyone up. It's not a drastic shift. It's not even traveling a single time zone. My hypothesis for why daylight savings time messes everyone up, and Steve, you might know if there's some actual research here, is because unlike traveling where the light actually shifts, with daylight savings time, the light doesn't shift. 
you know, it's shifting by like seconds and seconds every day throughout the year, but it's not like suddenly there's an hour shift. So when you travel one time zone away, sure, you're going an hour forward or an hour back, but so is the position of the, or, you know, the sun and the earth relative to each other. Whereas with daylight savings time, you're arbitrarily just saying, all right, let's shift an hour up or an hour back. But the position of the earth and the sun isn't changing that drastically overnight. 100%. I mean, that that's, uh, again, I don't know the sciences as much on but daylight the light savings exposure time. Thing, but which you do know. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's the light exposure that is the effect because it's the light exposure. None of that changes from one day to the next. Um, so we've got to adjust and a- adapt. And I think, I think if you look at the research, it shows why, you know, on average people, the couple days after daylight savings time sleep about 45 minutes less, and then it kind of slowly gets back into, um, into sync. And I think a large part of that is again, that light exposure, you just, You've got to, if you need to shift it, then you've got to get outside and see some light. Or if you don't, like this is actually one of those points where blue light is beneficial. And I'm not saying stare at Twitter, right? But I think sometimes we go... I don't know, man. We've been putting out some pretty good threads. That's right. Stare at our Twitter to help you wake up after daylight savings time. But it, it it's it's worth noting here because I think sometimes we go to the extremes on these things and... We have all these like blue light blocking uh, glasses, blue light blocking, you know, apps and stuff for our computers and phones, which are all great. But blue light is fantastic, you know, for waking up in the morning. You don't want to wear your blue light blocking glasses all day. <laughs> you just want it when you're when you're not supposed to have light. So, again, think to think to caveman Brad on when he would see light. And that's that's all you're trying to mimic. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So with daylight savings time, if it's still really dark when you wake up, but some arbitrary farm system developed hundreds of years ago mandates that daylight savings time now needs to be um, a thing, go throw yourself in front of some blue light if you can, or at least don't avoid it. Uh, and then just give yourself a few days because this this is not a melatonin thing. We're not talking about like a drastic shift in sleep cycle. This is just, you know, a couple days, maybe your sleep quality or quantity goes down a little bit and then it's going to pretty quickly rebound and the light exposure, the shifting your exercise practice and all that helps you get back on the right track. And this is a good time for the two rules of sleep. Like I used to, I used to worry about daylight savings time and then I had a child and it's like (laughs) one hour, like, you know what, if I didn't have two intermissions in the middle of the night and it's just one hour, I'll take that every day. You can shift it back and forth and don't even tell me because it means I'm either getting seven or nine hours, not eight. I'll take it. (laughs) Having a kid apparently changes perspectives, which is good. Um, so why why don't we jump into you know you mentioned the two rules one one of which is like really kind of don't stress it why don't we jump into something that can stress it which is the uh, sleep trackers that have kind of you know become in vogue lately yeah man there are so many sleep trackers um, there are ones that you can have on your phone that like sense your amount of phone time and your gate and all kinds of things and have an algorithm that is supposed to help with sleep. There are ones that you can wear on your wrist. 
that's supposed to track heart rate variability and micro movement. I know a popular one is a ring that you wear that um, allegedly is a really effective sleep tracker. Um, so let's talk about them because as you mentioned, yeah, they're really popular. So when I think of tracking devices like this, um, I think of a few things. And, and, and the first thing that I want to say before I get into that list is I don't think tracking devices are good or bad. I think they just are. I think they can be good and they can be bad and it depends. And then this list is kind of how I tease out whether it's good or bad. So the first thing is, is it accurate? Right? Because if it's not accurate, then it's like, well, why am I using it? If it's telling me that I'm not sleeping, but I'm actually sleeping, that's really problematic. If it's telling me I am sleeping, but I'm not sleeping, that's also really problematic. So the first thing I want to look for is, is there any independent research on the device uh, letting me know it's accurate? Another thing that you can do, especially with these devices whose whole algorithm is based on your heart rate, you can just buy an old school for $20, like polar chest heart rate monitor and wear that one night at the same time that you're wearing the watch or the ring or whatever and compare the two readings that you get because the chest we know is accurate. That's been validated against like echocardiogram during stress test during sleep. And if your chest strap is telling you A and your ring, watch, ankle band, whatever is telling you A plus or minus 20, then if the whole algorithm is based on heart rate, then none of it matters. You can even do the same thing with body temperature. Um, in the middle of the night, if you ever wake up to pee, you could quickly check your body temperature using a thermometer that's calibrated and then look at what the device says. And same thing, if body temperature is driving the algorithm and it's not accurate, forget it. So the first thing is, is it's accurate? The second thing is, do I actually need it? So anybody that is sleeping between seven and nine hours right now, my strong advice would be just keep doing what you're doing. Don't get a tracking device. If you are currently having an espresso after dinner, but you're sleeping nine hours a night, keep having your espresso after dinner. Like don't fix what's broken. Now, if you're someone that is really struggling to sleep and you have found a tracker that you believe to be accurate... This is where I think a tracker can be really helpful unless it gets in the way. So Steve, since we're on the same wavelength, why don't you explain what I mean by that? Because I, I think I know what I mean, but I'm not positive. <laughs> so I'm going to do this like I always do by citing a study, which I think is fascinating, which probably gets at this, is um, I think it was a year or two ago, uh, this group of researchers looked at these sleep trackers, sleep watches, and they actually manipulated it for um, the individuals in the study. So they all give these like sleep scores, right? And they would manipulate those sleep scores regardless of what their actual sleep was. So they tell some that they had better quality, right, sleep than they had, and they showed some that they had worse quality. And what they inevitably found is that whenever, regardless of their actual sleep, when they showed, um, when the watch showed that they had poor night's sleep, mood, like, was significantly worse. Uh, they had worse, they had a harder time with uh, thinking during the day. They had increased levels of perceived sleepiness. And they had more difficulty falling asleep afterwards. 
right? And again, this is just based on the feedback of the watch itself. So I think, you know, does that apply to everybody? Um, I'm not sure, but I think, you know, when we're looking at at these devices, you should ask yourself, as you mentioned there, Brad, is this helping me obtain my goal of getting more sleep? Or is this like hindering me and creating more anxiety and putting me in a place where where um where it's affecting things negatively? I mean, I guess the awareness to a degree can help, but a lot of times you have that awareness. Um, anyways, because what you're literally looking at is the awareness creates the impetus, right. impetus change. to change, right? Yeah, that's um, what I was going to come back to. So like, if you need a scoreboard to tell you that, hey, you shouldn't have coffee in the afternoon, or you shouldn't have four drinks, you know, of bourbon before bed, because your sleep quality suffers, then sure, use it for a couple weeks until you change that behavior. But then if there's no so what, even if the device is 100% accurate, it's not actually going to do anything. So if you wake up and the device says you got nine hours of great quality sleep, okay, what are you going to do? Throw yourself a party? If you wake up and your device says you got four hours of shitty sleep, what are you going to do? Like have it ruin your day? So it does, like if you're not going to change your behavior, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, not to name names, but I'm going to name some names here. One of my favorite things to hear is people that really like using their Whoop, which is one of these more popular devices that has a sleep element. And they all talk about how, you know, their Whoop, like, really helped them to, to stop drinking a ton. And if, that, if that's what helps you to stop drinking and a Whoop is, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, it's a great investment – but what I find funny is these people that, that tell these stories, like, you know, I was having like six drinks or five drinks before bed. And then my whoop told me like, that wasn't great for my sleep quality. And it's like, whoa, like you needed a whoop to tell you that getting drunk, like disrupted your sleep quality. Um, and then the flip side is also true. Some people that are like, you know, bro, like I used to have like a beer a few nights a week and then I got this whoop and man, now I'm never going to touch alcohol again. I'm not encouraging drinking, but I think stressing about having three or four beers a week is probably worse for your overall health than actually having the three or four beers a week. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's where it's all interrelated and interconnected. And I think that's probably the, the mistake we often make is we we think like this thing is good or bad and it's not necessarily good or bad now like five or six drinks you know in a night or you know even three or four drinks in a night whatever it is like yes that has a significant impact but if you're spacing it spacing it out and you're having a drink every couple nights or whatever it does the the stress you're getting probably from worrying about you know oh i shouldn't have that supersedes any sort of nominal change you'd have in uh, not doing that. So I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And I want to be, um, I want to be open though. So if we, if we have listeners that use like the, I think it's called the Quora or the Aura Ring or a Whoop or any of these devices, and you found that they've really helped you sleep and you still use them after whatever behavior change you made, because they still help you sleep. I'd, please email us and let us know, you know, get us through the growth EQ contact website because we'd be interested to come back on and, and discuss if, if there are things that we're missing because there very well may be. Um, 
Yet the research, to Steve's point, really does show that once you've made whatever behavior change that paying attention to sleep has helped you make, then the effectiveness of these devices really diminishes and often goes negative. There's another very popular study that showed independent of what the device tells you, simply using a sleep device led to worse sleep, worse quality and worse quantity. And the theory that researchers had is because if you are measuring something, sometimes there's like a nervousness, like, am I going to hit my metric? And if you feel like you need to hit your metric, um, that's probably not conducive to relaxing and going to sleep. Yep. I mean, that's the whole issue. And I just want to reiterate the, the other issue is that a lot of times we're stressing out and freaking out over a metric that most likely isn't, you know, 100% accurate. You yeah, know, I, I know, I, I, I know some. Yeah. Of the... I do think though, Steve, important. So like another, you know, another time when these things can work is if you're someone that's been so chronically sleep deprived for like years that now you just think that, oh, four hours of sleep, this is how everyone must feel. It's kind of like an alcoholic, you know, oh, having seven drinks, this must just be a normal way to feel. Then one of these devices, as long as it's accurate, can kind of zap you back into reality by being like, dude, like, here's the average person, here's you, this isn't normal. And if that motivates you to start sleeping more than four hours, then it can be really effective. And the only thing I'd caution there is if you look at, again, I haven't gone through all the research, but it's interesting that these things are more accurate on regular sleeping people and actually do a, a very poor job with those um not all of them, but on a couple of the research that they looked at devices, they do a very poor job with people in, who have insomnia, which makes sense, right? Because like the black box algorithm is Doesn't built around. It's like, dude, yeah. the hell's going on here, man? Two hours? <laughs> this can't be real. Um, so, yeah. It all, it, yeah, it's all kind of wild. But again, I think I think what we're pushing for is what like the self-awareness. For is save the $500 on your fancy device and become a growth EQ patron. And you won't have to hear <laughs> about the fancy device. And you'll continue to get this high quality podcast, exclusive stuff, our newsletter that gives you the motivation, support, belonging, community, and science, which is what you actually need to sleep more and feel better. Man, look at that plug. You're you're a pro now. You must have had a good night's sleep last night. Oh, I did. I actually slept great last night. Um, a lot of people like our tangents, so I'm going to go on one. It's funny. We get this feedback after podcast. I'm always like, Steve, I think I blew it. I think I went on a crazy tangent, and we're going to lose all these listeners. And then I get like seven emails like, we want more of the personal tangents. So last night, um, I hadn't been sleeping great because of uh, toddler life. And I told my dear wife, Caitlin, that I love you, but I love sleep more right now. So I'm going to go sleep in the guest room and I'll just take the dog with me because the dog is definitely um, most attached to me and he's still a puppy. So the dog wants his own sleep schedule now. They say that dogs change behavior fast. It was like a freaking light bulb. So last night he first refused to follow me down to the guest room after like 14 minutes of cajoling. He's in the guest room. Well, then the toilet in the guest room is like making all kinds of weird noises. So sorry if you've been a, a guest. I guess we haven't really had any guests because of COVID since we moved. So we have to fix this toilet before we have guests because it kept me up. So I'm like, oh, crap. 
guess I got to go upstairs. And then the dog's like, nope, I'm not going to come upstairs. And um, I probably wrestled with him for like an hour and he's a 50 pound German shepherd. So eventually he won and now he just sleeps wherever he wants. All right. The dog wins. Yeah, the dog. That's the, dog that's the conclusion. It's like the first rule is fight the dog, and the second rule is no one to stop fighting the dog. Yeah, no, we, you know, our dog wins every single battle almost here. So, um, actually, our dog sleeps really well since we're talking dogs, except for some reason he's deathly afraid of lightning. So if it lightning, but strikes, yeah, sorry, thunder. Oh, okay. Um, Say lightning, man. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think yeah, most no, dogs sorry, are afraid th- of thunder. Yeah, so he will jump up on top of my head on my pillow when I'm asleep, which wakes me up. But you know, yeah, that's where kids are better than dogs because you can talk to kids. So our our son was definitely afraid of thunder the first time he heard it, like, and he could understand because who wouldn't be? It's like the the sky is rumbling and if it's really big it can feel like the house is shaking and then i just told him that uh the sky is bowling and he laughs so hard and now every time it storms it's like is the sky bowling i think it creates the opposite problem because sometimes he's like i want to go outside and watch the sky bowl and it's like i don't know (laughs) But, you know, it's funny because this is uh, now this tangent's really gone off. Josh Waitzkin, who wrote The Art of Learning, who we talk about a lot in peak performance, like chess grandmaster, martial arts champion, phenomenal writer, teacher. Uh, I once heard him on um, uh, a long form interview talk about how whenever it would storm, he would go take his kids outside Obviously, not if like, you know, there's a forest and there's lightning. So as long as you're in a relatively safe place, he would take his kids outside to go stomping in the rain. And he's like, I've never had a kid that's afraid of a thunderstorm. And once his kids had the cognition, every time it's dark, he'd take them out when it's pitch black. And again, maybe in a safe space, but like play hide and seek in your backyard if it's fenced in or whatever. Never had a kid that was scared of the dark. Um so I think that's just like a, a, a totally interesting aside. It's harder with dogs because they can't understand. But things that typically scare us that aren't actually dangerous, the best way through is just exposure to those things early before we can create a narrative that they're dangerous. Yeah, it's that coupling, right? It's not the actual thing. It's it's the coupling right. with anxiety or fear. If your parents are like freaking out that it's thundering mm-hmm. and everyone's going nuts, then of course yeah. you're going to think thunder is bad. But if it thunders and you're like, oh, let's go check out this guy bowling. This is so cool. This guy's finally bowling again. Um, then it's neat. So what you're saying is in, with my future child, I'm just going to expose him to all or her to all sorts of uh, crazy scary things at uh early on the future child is there something that we need to know no no steve not not this is this is my hypothetical future child all right because as all listeners knows i found out that steve got married because my wife saw on instagram that steve was having a wedding and i probably had talked to steve already i don't know six phone calls that day that Steve got engaged the day before and Caitlin's like, Oh my God, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, why didn't you tell me what? Um, yeah. So the ongoing joke is that I'm going to know that Steve has a kid when my son comes home from like fifth grade. And he's like, I got paired with like a second grade buddy named Magnus. He said, his dad knows you. <laughs> 
behind the scenes look. I think we've gone far enough on our tangent away from sleep into the world of our partnership where I don't tell Brad anything and he calls me six times during the day. So that is the behind the scenes look for our podcast. I think to sum it up, Brad, why don't you give the summary on what matters in terms of sleep and then we'll leave it there. Love it. All right. So now those basic habits, uh, I can do the quick rundown of them again. It is keep the room dark as possible. Keep things cool because your body likes to be cool. That's what you need to do right before bed, leading up to bed. Limit, if any, alcohol. Cut caffeine out early on in the day. And most important, when you first wake up, get yourself some exposure to light. Exercise ideally early on in the day, but again, exercise at night is better than no exercise at all. Um, And that's that. So nail those basics. If you are doing some sort of shift work, if you're flying across major time zones and you need to be on your game the next day, if like the experience that I shared, for whatever reason, you're just having insomnia unrelated to any kind of anxiety or lack of, uh, excuse me, change in routine, Um, sometimes the cycle just gets a little bit out of whack and in those instances, melatonin can be really effective. Um, but it's not a long-term thing. It's a short-term thing. And remember that the industrial wellness complex is going to sell you that more is better. But with melatonin, we know that the ideal dose is between one and three milligrams, not grams. I was mistaken originally one to three milligrams. Um, so that's that with melatonin. And in terms of sleep trackers and neat devices, if it is bringing you awareness and that awareness is causing you to improve your behavior, that is a really big benefit. And it might be worth the financial outlay and kind of the psychological stress outlay to track sleep. But um, if it's not changing your behavior, then the current sleep devices often just make people more anxious and lead to worse quality sleep. Um, and if you are concerned whether or not your device is accurate to begin with, try to find an independent study. If you can't, you can try to trial one of these devices. I don't know. Hopefully these companies let you trial it and just pair it with a plain old thermometer or chest heart rate strap. And if whatever metric is driving their whole algorithm doesn't work, then it's probably not worth using that device. Love it. So Until next time, listeners, we hope that you get back on schedule after daylight savings time and uh, have some good sleep, but don't stress about it. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.